0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Boozy receptions into the early hours, packed hotel rooms don't ask about the ventilation, and a party leader under big pressure in a make-or-break speech. Yes, Labour conference was back. We'll catch up with the IFGers who braved Brighton. But is that where the real story is this week? As fuel ran dry, is the country and the government in crisis? Have ministers got a grip on what's going on? We're going to take a look at that. And then it's back on the conference circuit again with a preview of the Conservative gathering in Manchester. What should we be looking out for? What is the Prime Minister going to say? What does it all mean for the autumn? Well, all that's to come, and all with a brilliant podcast lineup. Hot-footing it back from Brighton are the IFG duo of Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello, Bronwyn. And IFG Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Great to have you both with us. And I'm delighted as well that we're joined by Rachel Weirmouth. Senior Political Correspondent at the Daily Mirror. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for being with us.
1: Hi, Bronwyn. Hi.
0: Let's start with the Labour conference. On the face of it, Brighton witnessed a lot of drama, party rules changes, an outburst by the deputy leader, including the word scum, a shadow cabinet resignation, future leadership hopefuls. Yes, Andy Burnham, we're talking about you. All that on the fringe circuit and in the main room. Rachel, did it feel
1: dramatic? I mean, how was the mood? um it was a almost peculiar kind of mood um when you look at some of the the votes on the conference floor it kind of underlined just how divided labor still is at the moment for example uh, uh, you know there were some votes for to get people onto certain committees in particular what, what is known in the Labour party as the national constitution committee which kind of oversees um how the party deals with complaints basically and some of the The moderates won almost all the votes, but really not by much, but that national constitution committee won I think it was like something like fifty point nine percent or something you know the the person they wanted in just some of them were getting just say past the post to get on there, so it made for a kind of yeah very divided kind of atmosphere, lots of positioning, lots of edginess, yes, yes yeah yeah it was I think I think. The moderates were, uh, uh, didn't have a quiet confidence, as I think they'd like to like to have spun it, as they had a, a quiet confidence But I think there was there were some votes that they really were kind of a little uncomfortable about. The numbers, I think, were influencing a lot of how the top of the Labour Party um, was speaking. That's
0: really interesting. We've got straight into the detail there of all this manoeuvring and so on. But if we just stick with the mood overall. Would you say that Keir Starmer strengthened his position? He was, after all, playing to those moderates in the party and in the country.
1: Yes, and I, th- I think um, it's kind of worth remembering that the, the Labour Party leader, when they go to a conference, has a has a different kind of job to the to what Boris Johnson will have this week. The Labour Party. Conduct almost all of its business at conference so that you know there are lots of votes on motions votes on who will be on what committee you know there's an awful lot of politics and actual business being done at the Labour Party conference whereas that's not not really the case at, at the Conservative Party conference you know it's it's more just speeches and fringes and what people are looking for the Labour Party the leader of the Labour Party to project when they go to conference is that they're in control of all that madness
0: there were all these rooms stuffed with people having these meetings, which really, as you said, do matter. I mean, people, you know, they run to refer back, well, that and that was decided at conference. So what do you make of the big speech?
1: I think it, it came up, like it was, uh, most people I speak to within the Labour Party th- think that it was okay. I think it was sort of a very much midterm speech, it did the job that it was supposed to do. I think some of the polling that we've seen afterwards, you know, I think Opinion did a snap poll afterwards, and it seems to have gone down fairly well with the public it wasn't short on policy but it could have been some of the language I think some people said could have been slightly stronger when it came to facing down some of these people on the left that were determined to just disrupt the the speech but I think had he have gone harder after some of the elements of his party I don't know how well that will have gone down with the public because a lot of Keir Starmer's brand seems to be like Almost non-political you know he's trying to project himself as someone who's moving on from you know the hyper factional period, so to wade into it too heavily perhaps wouldn't have reflected all that well on him a really interesting point so we'll come, we'll come back to that this is this is fascinating alex
0: but i i I'm longing to know this is your first party conference and you've been the senior civil servant for ages and so completely barred from such things. How did you find it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great experience to go for the first time. And I'm really looking forward to the contrast uh, between the Labour conference this week and the Conservative conference uh, next week. I suppose the first uh, a sort of impressionistic view is it was it was good fun. It, there was a sort of, uh, I think, maybe a little bit less factional than previous years from talking yeah. to people, a bit less frenzied, perhaps, as a kind of you know, midterm party conference. It was fun. It was lots of people sort of trying to spot other people, see reconnect with old friends. And to sort of observe that as an anthropological thing was very interesting, and it was a it was a perhaps surprisingly enjoyable place to be. I, I also think, uh, and this is with the the ex civil service hat on, it gave a really interesting insight into the pressures that act on politicians that you just don't see if you're sitting in an office in uh, Whitehall or even in Parliament. I think civil servants are obviously very conscious of uh, of Whitehall and increasingly uh, you know, try to be conscious of, of Parliament in order to do their jobs.
0: And, and this, side, this side being the party, as you said, not, 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 not the MPs who've been elected of that party, but just the party, the activists, the lobbyists, the people who really care, the people for whom this is the centre of the air. You don't see those pressures in Westminster uh, acting mm-hmm. on the leader, but they're real.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, I was talking to one Labour MP uh, and sort of made this point to him. And he said, it was family that hit home. Uh, and I think you don't see that. And also it helps explain you know, why politicians say some of the things they say. And so we as the sort of bureaucrats might think, well, why on earth are they saying that? That's ridiculous. But they've got in the back of their minds that they're balancing not just their parliamentary party and the sort of the interests of good government, but the uh, you know, the CLP member for whichever part of the country that that, that, that has left an impression on them.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And if I'm right, this is an MP who uh, hasn't found it a completely serene experience being part of that family, but still that very strong sense of, look, this is family, this is when we all get together, even if we get, get together to have rows. Just as someone who worked for many years in government, did it give you an insight to how policy is made, how parties actually come up with these things that they finally throw at civil servants and say, look, can you help us do this really quickly?
2: No, actually, if I'm <laughs> honest, um, I think there were lots of fringe meetings, lots of, some sort of discussions. I think it, it gave me, it gave me an insight into the context in which policy was developed. I suppose I didn't have, and there were some in, really interesting discussions. I didn't get a, real sense, uh, and this might be a sort of you know, challenge for the Labour Party coming up, of work being done to translate those sort of ideas into policies, but that may be, you know, it may be the, the, the events I, I went to. I, I was struck though, I mean and this is the, the Starmer speech, one of the themes in his speech was he talked about Boris Johnson lacking a plan, you know he doesn't, he doesn't have any plan beyond get Brexit done uh, and we are the party, Starmer was saying, that we'll have plans for the NHS, for the justice system, for education, for employment technology, um, and I I thought one of the uh, things that that Labour will need to do over the next few years as well as uh, uh, honing their political and strategic brand and impression on the electorate which will get a lot of newsprint I suspect is work up those plans for for how they're going to operate in government as well as what they're going to do so what those plans are and to have at least a little bit of their policy brains thinking about um, how you're going to organise and uh, work through the levers of government power to get policies that will that will emerge from, from these uh, Labour Party processes actually implemented on the ground.
0: Really interesting. And Gemma, you were looking at the policies. I mean, you were paying particularly close attention to what Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, had to say, as well as, I, I, I presume, to what Keir Starmer was saying about not going into any future election without a plan that really could be one of a future government. So did you learn anything about Labour's fiscal policies?
3: Rachel Reeves' speech was definitely one that was making a pitch to say the Labour Party are economically and fiscally competent. And in a way, her job was made somewhat easier by the fact she could point to lots of current economic problems uh, that she could say were the Tory government's fault. In terms of the detail of what Labour would actually do, there wasn't a lot of that. There was some sense of their principles that they would follow in terms of tax reform and that they want to abolish business rates. Um, there was talk about significantly more investment in green initiatives. And there was talk about a real focus on value for money and public spending. But there were, beyond that, it was really sort of broad Aims for what they want to do—that there would be industrial strategies for retail, hospitality, and care—that the Labour Party would work with businesses and trade unions and workers to deliver improvements in the everyday economy. But there wasn't a lot of detail about what that really is going to mean, about what they see as being the role for government within all of that. And there was actually some, clearly, some briefing with the Financial Times in advance of Rachel Reeves' speech that she was going to announce that they would stick to some fiscal rules very similar to the government's ones. And actually, it was really noticeable on that front that the speech itself didn't make any reference to those kind of rules. Um, So I think a lot of details left to be filled in, which is perhaps not surprising at this stage for an opposition party um, in the parliament. They've probably got quite a bit of time before the next election. And in many ways, we probably hope they didn't nail themselves down too early to policies without giving thought to them.
0: All that sounds very sensible. On the other hand, we do have this question of whether there is a dividing line between Labour and the Conservatives, and we have the Conservatives in a really interesting point after this extraordinary eighteen months of the pandemic. Vast amount of money being spent uh, has been spent, even if some of it is now being turned off, like the the, the furlough scheme. And at the you know at this very moment, the Conservatives in know something of a tangle about how much they're having to intervene in all kinds of markets, whether energy supply or trucks or whatever. Did you come away from it feeling that there was a clear dividing line between Labour and the Conservatives or that there there wasn't and the Conservatives really have a bit of a job to do next week in explaining how they're different?
3: I couldn't see that clear a dividing line between Labour and the Conservatives and I think that's in part because we're not quite sure what the Conservative government really is going to do and partly because Labour's ambitions were pretty broad brush and not terribly detailed. I think if I was to try and identify specific areas where there may be some clear water, uh, Labour were much more specific about their plans to invest in green things, Um, although we may well see the government uh, come out with more ambitious plans on that front between now and the COP26 meetings in November. Um, Rachel Reeves was also much more keen to emphasise that they would promote industrial strategies for some of our big service sectors like care and retail and hospitality, whereas the government has much more to date focused on the desire for sort of high-tech service sector, high-tech sector interventions.
0: Really interesting. And let me ask you a real IFG question. Um, Labour had plans for an office of value for money. You were just referring to value for money. What should we make of this?
3: Um, There wasn't a lot of detail about what that really means. I think one key question is what do they have in mind that goes beyond what the National Audit Office already does? perhaps the area where sort of we've highlighted in the past the National Audit Office doesn't do so much is a sort of real-time assessment of value for money. So as policies are being developed and including things like think about big multi-year infrastructure projects that the NAO tends to focus on a sort of ex-post evaluation of was this project good value for money as opposed to in real time sort of scrutinizing changes in costings and the cost benefits. So there is potentially a, a gap there for Doing more scrutiny of value for money. Um, I think the question would be that this probably is something that sounds nice as an opposition proposal, um, but once you're in power as a government minister, it would be potentially quite constraining on your behaviour to have this additional scrutiny and have to be very transparent about uh, what your plans are. So you'd need to set it up in such a way that it had. pretty strong legal independence um, to ensure that it wasn't just overruled in practice.
0: At which point it would, as you said, be a pain in the neck for for, um, politicians in in, in power. That sounds all too astute, I'm afraid. Rachel, I'd I'd love to bring you into a different aspect of this, which is devolution. We do an awful lot of work at the IFG on devolution, and Labour's got a big foothold in devolved and regional politics. Did it make the
1: most of all that and its mayors that it's got um, at, at this conference? I, th- I think the 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 mayors at this conference were, were were politically all more prominent. When I sort of, you know, when, what I'm talking about, for example, Andy Burnham apparently making a a pretty <laughs> making very clear that he's ambitious for for the leadership in. in he would G- like to be leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> he, he, he certainly seems like that's that's what he's going for. It, 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 well, it's it's a complex thing. It's it's kind of to say that they are all the the idea of. Devolve politics right is that you're representing your area and you're not just you know I think this is a criticism that was thrown at Scottish Labour all the time you don't you know you're not just a branch office of the, the central party so I think you'll probably see a lot more from here on in of mayors intervening for on pick, pretty big policy ideas because it works specifically for their area and you'll probably see a lot of you know you might see Scottish Labour taking on the central Labour Party a little bit more just to kind of demonstrate the benefit of having that definition and and saying that's a good way of advertising how devolved government could work.
2: I think there's a really interesting contrast between you know watching Andy Burnham at the conference and watching mm. Sadiq Khan. Uh, uh, mm. Khan was obviously being more loyal but he was also pitching himself i heard him speak as a you know as a mayor almost of a global city you know talking yeah. about london's equivalents being new york paris singapore mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sort of reaching out and almost painting on that broader canvas whereas it felt that andy burnham was still definitely in the kind of uh, you know in the in the day to day british politics space so i think how those mayors carve out their roles differently is is really interesting as well
1: i think that's right um i think they all both have like different brands you know i, th- I think andy doesn't Shy away from the King of the North kind of <laughs> characterisation of you know the whole Burnham brand, and I th- but I think that in a way it works works well for for some of the northern cities and northern towns that he is there to to represent in a way. You know, they kind of they like to see him as as a as a, a plucky and gobby kind of character. You know, I think that's that that probably goes down quite well. So, if you look at next week's Conservative conference, which is
0: in Manchester, Andy Burnham's town, where he where is mayor, he's saying that he will set out a leveling up a proposal for Michael Gove, the minister who's now in charge of all that. What should we make of that?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that's good politics, right? You know, like um, set out a bath that that you know, probably one you know that the government might miss. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's probably a good way to set it out. But and when it comes to leveling up, I think it'll be. I wonder if we might hear more from the government now about outcomes rather than just opportunities because when you think about some of the places that levelling up is, is targeted at you know it's a new town centre is not going to be not going to make much of a difference if you still have huge levels of child poverty you know it's kind of they're going to have to start to to reframe it I think if they want it to be something that is going to be a success at the next election.
0: Let's move to our second topic, which feels rather like levelling down. Um, but that's the, um, the fuel crisis and petrol stations up and down the country having very, very little fuel. I have to say, I'm recording this from Wales, where there is um, probably more than in England at the moment. The Prime Minister says the crisis is easing. Troops have been deployed. That's never a good look for the government. Alex, is the government guilty of not spotting this crisis and heading it off? Or is it really, despite what it feels like, look, something that just happened?
2: I mean, it's, I suppose it's sort of both. It just happened, but the government could have been more on the front foot and could have been clearer and uh, calmer, particularly in its communications. And, uh, certainly some of those government communications didn't help uh, reduce people's anxiety about the availability of fuel. It also strikes me this is one of those crises where The government is expected to do quite a lot, but the levers it has are actually very limited. I mean, I I agree with you, Bronwyn, that that troops on the streets isn't a good look for the government, but equally sort of action and activity is quite a good response to some of these crises because it gives the impression of a government in control that knows what it's uh, doing. But I think in this instance the communications were everything. Troops can't move much fuel around the country and there's, uh, you know, there are risks to them doing so with uh, minimal training, fast tracking, HGV driver licences also isn't going to make that much difference in the short term. So the key with this was, was always going to be avoiding panic buying and keeping uh, people calm. This is something the government uh, does and should know.
0: It really comes back to communications. I mean, supply lines very, very tight and so on. But government communications absolutely key because they're saying a lot of the problem is people panic buying, as opposed to actual shortages.
2: Yes, and I would I would add sort of the word credible to that as well. And so I think it's not just the top line sort of having a single uh, person to deliver the message who is credible and uh, being consistent in that message and not then sort of announcing a thousand other initiatives that you might be doing to respond to it, but also being open with the data, with what the government knows about where fuel supplies are so that people can see that the system is moving. And I think people accept those sort of supply constraints sometimes. But if there's uh, clear uh, data showing and, and, and clear evidence, Evidence showing what isn't isn't happening. I think that helps as well. The point I was going to make is that this is not news to this or any other government. The No Deal Brexit plans. There were lots of planning around availability of food supplies. Um, we obviously experienced it to some extent at the beginning of the pandemic with with toilet rolls and, and shortages of goods. Uh, experienced the fuel protests in in two thousand. This is this sort of fairly well worn government stuff. And I was I was surprised the government was a little bit slow to react, which may be partly because of the the Brexit context and not wanting to sort of overegg something that. That could be traced back to to government policy decisions Um, or it might be they were just uh, just a bit slow off the mark
0: and you're actually joining us from sandhurst for reasons relevant to ifg work but not directly to this podcast any military comment on you know forget about afghanistan your mission is to make sure motorists can fill up their tanks.
2: Well, I suppose it shows the, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting coincidence. It shows the uh, variety of work that the military's called on to do. I was talking to someone earlier today who was in uh, on the sort of uh, forward line in uh, in Afghanistan uh, and then talking about the fuel crisis, and he was slightly, he was almost a bit kind of bashful about the way that, that the military gets called on in these events and would say, well, actually, there are so many people, civilians behind the scenes, other actors in all of this, and yet everyone from, you know, from the media, through to the the public uh, focuses on the army as the, the story. So he was a little bit sort of um, uh, a little bit embarrassed about it, I'd say. And
0: they're not wanting to become, be becoming the story. Gemma, can you just take us into a bit what actually is going on? Is this Brexit? Is it COVID? Is it something more global? Is it every day government getting something wrong?
3: It, it's a bit of everything. It's definitely partly to do with the pandemic. Uh, the number of people who were able to take HGV driver tests last year fell dramatically there were 30,000 fewer test slots available there's also been uh loss of drivers because of the fact that the pandemic made it much harder to travel across borders. And so some non-UK drivers who had been working here decided to leave during the pandemic so that they could go and see their families. And it's estimated around 14,000 EU HGV drivers left the UK over the last year, and most of those have not come back. There is a bit to do with Brexit. The UK has for a long time been quite reliant on EU HGV drivers to help transport goods around the country. And so the fact that it is now somewhat more difficult for EU drivers to come and work in the UK has had a bit of an impact, but this is not an exclusively UK problem. There is a shortage of HGV drivers across Europe um, and much of it comes down to much more structural problems in the industry. The Road Haulage Association estimates there was a shortage of 60,000 HGV drivers even before the pandemic. Some people have queried that number, but certainly for a long time, there's been a a shortfall of people wanting to go into this industry because of issues around pay and conditions. So this is something that has been coming for a while, albeit exacerbated by the pandemic and by Brexit.
0: Thanks for that. And and your take on, are we at the beginning of this, middle, end?
3: I think the positive outlook would be that the sort of immediate panic high levels of demand may ease somewhat. There is a limit to how much petrol and diesel people can store in their cars and in their jerry cans. So some of the initial uh, panic of buying uh, may ease over the next few days. On the other hand, I think the more pessimistic outlook is that actually the dealing with the shortfall of drivers, um, it's not obvious that there's any short-term solution to that the idea of more short-term work visas will take a bit of time to get in into operation and even when it's once it's in operation there are some questions around how attractive that will really be to non-uk drivers it's a, it's only a three-month work visa and if paying conditions are not particularly attractive anyway then will they really want to come and will that do much to ease the pressures
0: all right. Well, thank you for that. It is impossible to call that optimism exactly, Rachel. Just bring us back to the politics, if you would. I um, mean, this fuel crisis is happening at the same time as furlough ends. Universal credit uplift is, uh, is you know, going to be cut unless there is some last minute fudge on that. Is there a narrative forming that Labour can take advantage
1: of? There's, there certainly should be. I think, um, but there, there are a number of things that 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 Boris Johnson could do at um, the Conservative Party conference that would would scotch that. You know, you kind of wonder if he might look at another uh, sort of raising the minimum wage. I wonder if he might come out with some really big policies around levelling up that would really capture people's imaginations. But um, there's, there's certainly the risk that they're leaving themselves um, quite vulnerable on a, on a number of fronts here, as you say. This um, there was a Conservative MP who who got in touch with me b- before Labour conference to say we lose the motorists we'll, we'll lose the next election. So that there's there's a, certainly a um, a level of discomfort from from the Conservative backbenchers as, um, as as well as well as anywhere else. Um, and yeah, you know it would, it would when you're looking at sort of how much people's he- heating bills are about to go up. You know there's, there's there's a lot of things that that are coming down the track that are about to affect people's really bread and butter quality of life they're going to have to have some answers for for that at this conference otherwise the headlines will continue that people are going to really be struggling you know in particularly that universal credit cut you know there's a lot of conservative mps who who are uncomfortable about that because they know how it's going to affect their constituents absolutely well we don't have to come and come to the end of a pandemic if you've got growing queues at food banks it's just it's not exactly a feel good factor is it
0: Let's use that as a chance to turn and look full square at this Conservative Party conference that is um, kicking off next week. Um, Rachel, for a start, are you packing mm-hmm. your suitcase again heading heading off to that one?
1: Yes, I am. Yeah, I, um, I had a long lie in this morning to try to try and recover from the, from the last one. And I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm preparing to, to go down there on, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm
0: looking that's, forward that, to that, it. I that, think that, that's that. more than the call of duty, getting ahead of the first fringe meeting on Sunday. So... <laughs> Just tell us: Do you think the prime minister is under much pressure, and is he under more pressure because of the Labour
1: Party conference this week? When you think, you know, he's got a lot of backbenchers who are who are unhappy. Um, he's going to have to really project boosterism, but they're going to they're going to need some 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 real meaty policies to to go with it to sort of set the you know when he did his when the prime minister did his reshuffle about two weeks ago now. That that was seen as a bit of a of a reset and looking ahead, so he needs to be fresh, you know. But, but he's been he's the prime minister and leader of a party that's been in power for a very very long time, and it needs to feel like it has that new government feel still. Yeah. And I think I think the Conservatives, have, as 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 I said time and time again, if they don't think that Boris Johnson is is a winner, they'll move. Pretty sharpish to to replace him if they don't see him that way anymore. So the polling after the, the polling after this conference, I think, will be a thing to watch. You know, it, does it go down well? Or are they still comfortable with him?
0: No, I think that's right. I mean, there's no sign of that right at the moment. It seems to me. Um, you know, he's he's riding fairly high, but it has been an absolutely extraordinary eighteen months, and as we've just been discussing, a very difficult winter to come. Gemma, what are you looking for? We've got some big financial economic announcements. We've got quite a lot from Rishi Sunak that's going to come out at conference. And we've got, you know, this, it still feels like a disagreement between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, not the first time, um, on how much to spend.
3: I think those are exactly the right questions to be asking of this conference speech. I think the things I'll be looking out for is firstly, that question about fiscal restraint, how much and how quickly does the government need to get borrowing down from where it is at the moment? And does the Chancellor kind of hold this balance of power on that or uh, does Boris Johnson and what seems to be his greater desire to spend more money uh, win out? I think over the summer it felt like Rishi Sunak was very much regaining the upper hand on that question when we had the uh, debate around the cut in overseas aid spending the commitment that was made alongside that, that uh, overseas aid spending would return to 0.7% of gross national income once uh, borrowing uh, was back down and once debt was falling, seemed very much a sort of restatement of Rishi Sunak's previous commitment on the fiscal rules. So it'd be interesting at this conference to see whether it still seems to be the case that he is committed to and imposing those sorts of fiscal rules across the government's decisions. It will also be interesting to see to what extent he starts to preview the choices that are going to be need, need to be made in the spending review. There are lots of very worthy calls on public money for the forthcoming spending review. And do we start to get hints in this conference of where the priorities are going to be and whether those are still the same priorities that we had pre-pandemic or whether those have shifted somewhat. And thirdly, I will be watching out uh, for... Who's who's using the term levelling up and who's defining what that means? At oh. the moment, it, there are alternative visions of that. One is quite an economic version of that vision. Is this about improving economic output and how do you do that? Uh, the other version is much more about social capital, town centres, civic infrastructure and things. And what do we learn from the conference about really what the government's priorities are on that?
0: Really interesting three things, and I want to just um, ask you about a fourth, which is how much these conservatives feel that they should be intervening in markets. It's um, You can see this kind of debate beginning to hum among conservative columnists in the, in the media and so on, but you've got this government in a very pragmatic way intervening in all kinds of markets, energy, and, and uh, you've now got the truck driving issue, and all kinds of bits and pieces that Brexit has created. And you've got various commentators saying, look, uh, is this really compatible with conservatism? Do you see that that kind of thing might bubble up, or is that really not the kind of um, nitty-gritty of conference?
3: I think it's definitely an unresolved question for this government. And you're right that the year and a half of the pandemic has seen the government intervene so much more in so many more areas that it's probably opened up a whole load of new questions about the extent to which things could be done differently and some of that could continue. Whether we get a lot of that in conference, I'm not so sure. I mean, those are quite strategic decisions about economic regimes, regulatory policies. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure how much detail we'll get into on that.
0: Yeah, it's not the most intellectual or academic environment. It doesn't operate like a Paris salon, if I can put it that way. Um, it's full of the hurly-burly. So, Alex, what are you looking for next week?
2: Well, first to continue my anthropological journey through the party conferences, um, both in terms of the the delegates and the, uh, the sort of different uh, rules and and function of the conference, but also to see the difference between a party in government and a party out of government and the uh, uh, the differential lobbying that that goes on there. Secondly, and sort of more substantially, building on what um, Rachel and Gemma were saying, I think there's a, a question of how Boris Johnson and the, the, the Conservatives Rebut what was a building uh, kind of mantra in uh, the Labour conference about the Tory cost of living crisis. So yes, responding to the fuel and supply chain questions, but what they're doing about about cost of living and whether they're able to rebut that attack. And then finally, again, Rachel and Gemma hinted at this, but how far it is a, a Boris Johnson trying to present a fresh post-COVID face, refresh the government, new, new ideas versus what um, he said in a government context, which is that the next couple of years will be focused on delivery and implementation and making the uh, uh, changes that they've promised around levelling up, up real. Is it a sort of midterm term grit your teeth and get on with the job conference or is it a sort of um, reset so I think that will be very interesting uh, to see how that plays out.
0: Well thank you all for that and um, I think we should remind ourselves that it is pretty extraordinary a year on from completely virtual party conferences that we are in fact back and talking to people in person in all these uh, political jamborees. That's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow and especially to Rachel Wearmouth If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got a fascinating discussion on how well government department boards are working or not working. And next week, we're going to be hosting Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's former chief of staff, always outspoken, always a bit droll, for an in-conversation event. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review, good or bad, preferably good, but like Keir Starmer, we can handle a few heckles. You can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And if you're in the line of work that will take you to Manchester next week, then do come and say hi to us. Have a good weekend.